I couldn't be religious and gay. It was impossible. I was being marketed as some sort of like teenage it girl. When a girl kissed me on my 18th birthday, a whole other world opened up to me. I was a minor nuisance. Eight Australians will tell you about the choices that have led them to unexpected places. These are some of the stories you will hear on Let Me Tell You, a podcast where real people tell incredible real stories. Look for Let Me Tell You and follow wherever you get your podcasts. We would like to offer our respects to the traditional owners of all generations upon whose lands this podcast has been created. We'd also like to acknowledge any First Nations listeners. There is community that wants to lift people up. From whatever background you have, there is a community of people who want to see you shine. And so find those people and shine together. Hello and welcome to The New Writer's Room, a podcast for emerging writers. Today, I'm your host. My name is Sarah Malik, and I am a senior writer and presenter at SBS Voices. Now, this is usually a podcast all about the art of memoir writing, but for this episode, we thought we'd do something a bit different, celebrating words in the context of NAIDOC Week. The theme for this year's NAIDOC is Get Up! Stand up, show up. So in honour of NAIDOC, the theme for today's show is literature as resistance, exploring how literature can be used to recenter black stories, capture forgotten histories and assert sovereignty. So to do this today, we have two incredible guests, Professor Larissa Berendt, who is a filmmaker, broadcaster, academic and the author of three novels. Home, which won the 2002 David Unipon Award and the Regional Commonwealth Writers' Prize for Best First Book. Legacy, which won the 2010 Victorian Premier's Literary Award for Indigenous Writing. And the best-selling After Story, which was long-listed for the Miles Franklin Literary Award. We also have Jazz Money. Jazz Money is a Wiradjuri poet, artist and filmmaker currently based on sovereign Gadigal land. Her David Unipon award-winning debut poetry collection, How to Make a Basket, was published in 2021 by University of Queensland Press. Jazz is currently working on Winhangana, a feature-length cinematic journey through visual archives. Welcome, Larissa and Jazz. Great to be here. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. I guess I'd like to begin by, first of all, asking both of you, what was your relationship to reading and writing as a child? Well, my mother taught me to read very early on and both my parents really loved books and both of them didn't really get to finish uh, the education they wanted, mum because she was a woman and dad because he was Aboriginal. So they both loved books. We didn't have much money growing up but we had books as treats, like if you did something good, you got a book. Uh, They were really highly regarded in our house. And I guess also perhaps luckily we didn't have television till till we moved to Sydney and I was probably about eight. So I had a lot of time where I had to read and imagine. So I like to think that helped a little bit too. And Jazz, your own story of kind of growing up in an isolated town and books also being a lifeline for you is something that um, I think is incredible. I think that's a very classic story for 
kids who grow up in regional areas, particularly people who feel a little bit outside of whatever the dominant society is, to really get lost in books. Um, I had a bit of a funny relationship with reading, though. I didn't really learn how to read till I was eight, but I was obsessed with books as objects because I knew that they were these powerful objects. And so I'd always carry them around <laughs> even and pretend to read them. Everyone thought I could read. I was way too old when they realised I couldn't. But I was just so enamoured by the worlds that they held when people would read them to me that, um, yeah, I, I always wanted to have them near me even if I couldn't untangle the letters. <laughs> and I remember that you wrote a piece for SBS Voices last year actually where you said that your mother used to send you to school with a different book of poetry every week. Can you tell us a bit about that? I think it's actually really similar to what Larissa was just saying. Both of my parents had educations that were cut short, neither of them finished school but that didn't mean that they weren't very passionate about the importance of education and um, self-driven thought and so yeah my mum really instilled that in me by giving me these poetry books that I didn't know what to do with but I knew that they were powerful Um, and so I'd bring one to school every week and um, I think my teacher just thought I was the biggest pain because like they weren't going to read Yeats to (laughs) this class of (laughs) six-year-olds but um, my mum treasured it so much and wanted that to be something that I could carry around. So books kind of cast their magic spell on you both and you acknowledge kind of the power that they had. When did you make that connection between I guess literature and stories and truth-telling that is such a vital part of both your works now? When I was growing up there weren't the depth of First Nations writers that there are now so you didn't couldn't go and borrow a book by Anita Heiss or Tony Birch you kind of had what there was in the library and exactly what Jazz was saying you feel like you you trying to find your place and it's sort of not in your immediate area so you're looking for these other worlds but compared to that outside of school I knew my own family's history with the removal policy which wasn't taught my dad spent more and more time in Redfern so I knew a political history that wasn't taught understood concepts like land rights and sovereignty that weren't taught in school. So I guess even from that stage, probably when I was in my early teens through high school, I started to feel the disconnect between the oral histories and conversations in my family and community and what was available to me in the classroom. So I think far more sophisticatedly about it now, and I certainly didn't have that ability to articulate or comprehend it then, but I think that's when I first started to really feel that disconnect between my culture and my political history that I was very proud of and the the um it's invisibility and the racism that I was experiencing at school yes jazz you actually have a line that you mention um I write because there is no truth yet no justice well that's powerful To pick up on what Larissa was just saying, there is so much truth writing in this place that is coming from First Nations people. I think there can always be more. That that line that you've just quoted sits in a, a poem that I have called If I Write a Poem, which I wrote at a time when I was trying to unpack the motivations for wanting to be a storyteller and to want to make that a public facing thing. And I was very worried that it was being driven by ego And I didn't want to get into it if that was the motivation because it didn't represent or reflect any of the values that I wanted to bring to any sort of work. 
I sat with that kind of conundrum for a long time and um, realised that the reason I want to write, um, you know, I come from a long line of storytellers. My mum's my side is Irish Catholic. My dad's side is Wiradjuri, like this, this big yarns. <laughs> I realised that if I was going to write, it had to be to honour family and legacy and to honour truth, and that is as a First Nations person and as a queer person, both communities that have been there have been very concerted attempts to write those legacies out of the history books. And so I write as part of an incredible legacy of people who have done that work before me and I hope to continue and add, you know, my little ember to the big fire. It's more than a little ember, Jazz. <laughs> no, that's really powerful. I mean, both of you spoke about this feeling of invisibility in the dominant discourses. Um, and I guess I wonder, you know, that theme of NAIDOP, get up, stand up, show up what does that mean to you in the context of your work the bit that resonates with me in terms of that concept is this idea of the responsibility of using voice and that's something that I guess both of my parents had really encouraged in me and it's an interesting tension, really, because there's this wonderful thing in our culture that wisdom comes from listening, not speaking. So just because you're the person who can be an advocate for other people who aren't as well off as you are, that is only a part of the equation. doesn't mean that you're wise or gifted. You're still on your learning journey. And I became a lawyer because I wanted to change the world and get out there and use my voice to represent people who within my own community, didn't have the same privilege as I did, didn't have the education, didn't have the resources. And I guess over time, as I've gotten older, I've started to understand that actually being an advocate isn't always about speaking for other people. You need to be really reflective about when that's appropriate and, you know, go through a process of thinking, is it really my place to be speaking or can I use my power in an even more powerful way to give somebody else the chance to speak up. I'm wondering, does that resonate with you, Jazz, also as a, as a filmmaker and someone who not only is telling your own story but also want to tell broader stories as well? Yeah, actually, it feels very um, familiar and I guess part of my journey into filmmaking was I studied it straight out of school because I knew I wanted to work in story in some way and then I still think it is such a powerful tool and it is, like you were saying, Larissa, such an incredible gift to be able to sit with someone and let them tell their story in the way that they want it to be told. I have worked a lot with people who are speaking languages other than English, first languages of the continent, and to be able to just sit with someone and let them speak in the language that is most appropriate for them and then deliver that to other people, it's like, it's so joyous I guess, Larissa, I did want to um, go to you and talk about your book, um, which centres around a mum and a daughter, Jasmine and Della. Um, now, Jasmine decides to take her mum, Della, on a literary tour of England and hopes it will bring them closer together. And a lot of this book is about storytelling, family and history and how the past shapes us. I guess, Larissa, I wanted to ask, why did you decide to set this book in England, the land of the colonisers? It is a bold move for a First Nations <laughs> book, I concede. But I would say I feel like their hometown, their place, the little frog hollow part of their town is always present. So they feel very much of that place. And from my own experience, I know I spent several years living overseas and 
There were things about it that were really important in shaping who I am as a First Nations woman. Made me realise it didn't matter what choices I made, whether I dyed my hair blonde, whatever I decided to do with my life. That was such an important, inherent part of me, I'd never lose it. And I think there is something about how, whether you go overseas for a long period of time or just a little bit, you're always learning something about yourself as much as you're learning about the things around you. So that was sort of something that I wanted to explore with both of the characters, plus putting them in a position where, you know, there's a lot of a lot of um, history between them, a lot of unfinished business, one might say, and putting them in a place where they couldn't just have a huff and leave each other, that they were kind of caught together. And it felt like putting them in the place of the coloniser was more, more than just a, you know, a, a cute twist on the colonisers coming here and observing us and analysing us. It was more than that. It was particularly for somebody like Della to, in her very down-to-earth way, be able to analyse what was in this culture that was supposed to be so superior to her own and having her ability to frankly analyse that felt like it was a really important part of, of what I wanted to say. So there were lots of things that led to the decision, even though it might seem like it's a very odd thing to do. There was method to the madness. No, I think it's incredible and very subversive as well. And I also think, you know, Jazz, your work plays with form so much and it's kind of subversive in the way that, you know, you don't obey the conventional conventions of poetry, you know, in terms of sometimes the words appear across the page, down the page, you know, you often speak in language. Was that a deliberate decision by you? I think there's a really um, incredible legacy of poetics coming that have come from First Nations people from this continent, oral or written or otherwise, that really play with the edges and the confines of the English language and English as an import. And I, I very much see myself kind of in that tradition and I will a huge debt to a lot of writers who have come before me. But it's just also the way that I see the world. You know, writing in language and writing in Wiradjuri is just a, a continuation of the way that I'm negotiating life as someone who's, I didn't grow up with that language, but it's a very active thing that I pursue, um, being reconnected with Wiradjuri. And so um, what a great way to learn is to put it in your writing, right, and actually embed it in life. And in terms of playing with the page, that's something that I just, I didn't know if I would ever get to write another book, right? So I thought I'd really make the most of having this object, you know, UQP couldn't get out of it. I'd won an award. So <laughs> I thought I'm going to throw everything into this object and I want when people to, I want people to hold it and for it to be special and it to be this participatory engagement. You know, it's not just um, something that you can kind of approach neutrally or passively. It's It's very, yeah, it is a book that maybe... Demands a little bit, but also I hope it gives it back in that way. Can I read a line that I really loved? There's a passage where you write, When I break through the confines of English, I'm free. All the best things I write are straining at the edges of the colonizer's language. Wow. <laughs> I know, right? I just... Like... Gosh, um, look, yeah, sorry for trying to import my, <laughs> my, you know, reading on, but that's something that stayed with me all night, actually. I was thinking about that. What were you thinking when you wrote that? So that poem's called Nyaragan and it's the first piece in the book that's, yeah, it's not sitting on the normal way on the page. It's kind of in the corner, upside down a little bit. Um, and actually, the, I was thinking about um, 
The great poet, Murray poet, Lionel Fogarty, actually, at that point when I wrote this poem, and I remember it really clearly because I was thinking about how Lionel writes poetry in this way that is such a, like, diabolical assault to English in the best possible way. Um, And I was thinking about when I'm doing my own writing, the things that I'm always proud of are the things that throw away, the the things that I learnt in school, the rules that I learnt in school. And um, the best writing of anyone that I know, particularly First Nations writing, is the stuff that plays with the inheritance of English and tries to look at it kind of analytically or tries to express language and story in a way that honours the traditions of whoever whoever that person is that is, sits outside of the import of English. Yes, and I think that that's something that both your works have in common, kind of this critical interrogation of what you've inherited. And I guess, you know, Larissa, you are the first Indigenous woman to graduate from Harvard Law School. You know, you're very modest. You didn't mention that. <laughs> you're very impressive. And I guess, you know, like Jasmine, you know, you've ascended into this particular world with which has its hierarchies. And I was wondering, like, was that a struggle for you, like Jasmine, trying to figure out your navigation between those two systems? It's funny you underlined that line in Jazz's poetry because in that poem, because I actually really responded strongly to the same line. And partly because, I mean, it's this amazing thing where poetry sort of feels like it's so pared down, but it's like every, you get these little nuggets in there. There's that wonderful comment by Mark Twain where he said, I'd, I'd write short stories, but I don't have the time, so I write novels instead. And I feel like poetry takes it to the next level. And you get these little gems. And I think for, for me as well, why I responded to it was actually it felt like it resonated with many aspects of what I struggle with in terms of working within these systems. It reminded me of work I would do around concepts of sovereignty and self-determination and and speaking to First Nations people around the country about what those ideas mean and people having trouble explaining what those words mean to them because those words are English words and they're really impoverished. And the number of times people would say, I'm not sure what the word is, I'm not sure, but I'm sure there'd be one in my own language. So that just feels like there's a real resonance in that idea that we're confined by the systems we're working in and the institutions. We're also confined by the language. And sometimes when we start to use a word like sovereignty and self-determination, the colonisers will take it and use it in a context so we lose that power again. So there's real complexities around how you navigate these spaces. And I guess for me, in some ways, that's what I have Jasmine in the book doing. My middle name's Jasmine as well. So that's kind of (laughs) sort of brings us all together in another way, the jazz, jazzy Jasmine thing, but um, in a great way. Um, and, And, you know, in a way, I feel like that's what I've tried to explore with her, that there is a way in which you go into these systems, education, law, And you are really in there trying to change these colonial institutions, but you run these huge dangers that they kind of co-opt you or they break you or um, they make you impotent. And I guess that, in a way, was what I wanted to explore with Jasmine's journey was that she sort of, in a way, tries to assimilate herself into it, to be the good girl, the one that people find acceptable she gives up so much to do that and can't be whole until she really leans back into who she is. She can't do that in those systems. She has to do that by going back to family and country. It's a struggle I had myself, but 
I see it as a struggle that a lot of the students that I work with, younger ones have as well, that sometimes the price of success in those institutions and being told by those professions or those spaces that you're clever and exceptional can actually be things that trip you up in terms of keeping you connected to the things that really make you who you are and where the real wisdom around you actually lies. You know, Jazz, you mentioned something before about why you are attracted to poetry as a medium because it allows you a bit more fluidity. I was wondering if you could talk a bit more about that, why you were drawn to poetry. Poetry is really the only thing that makes sense <laughs> to me as a writer. I would love to write a novel like Larissa or, or some deadly essays, but um, I just, the thing that I really love about poetry is that it allows for a lot of complexity and it allows for a lot of simplicity all at the same time. You can do so much with one page and that's an incredible gift with poetry, I think. It's also a tool that can kind of oscillate very quickly between activism and self-determination and self-love and community and care. I think a, an audience or a reader is probably more accepting of huge twists in a poem because it'll be over quickly. <laughs> but it's something that I wanted to pick up on what Larissa was just saying is also just writing poetry can often happen in absence of colony and I think when we're constantly sort of in opposition to a colonial overpower or a colonial body, um, we constantly have to having to justify our eye, ourselves in the, this Western lens and our existence. And I think something that I really get a lot from writing and writing poetry is that it can exist without those confines and without that lens and it can be truly a celebration of... First Nations love or queer love or women or it can be all these things that we don't need to be defined by deficit. We can just be abundantly determined and sovereign in, on the page. Um, yes, and there's that poem where you imagine a future utopia with a black leader of the country and I love how you do that. And is that part of imagining joyful possibilities? Yeah, absolutely. I think... I'm a huge fan of Indigenous futurism and a lot of the um, writing and film and just absolutely deadly concepts that come out of that space. And um, I wouldn't say that I'm necessarily any sort of expert in it, but I think it's so important to see ourselves in the future, right, and to imagine hopeful spaces. I think personally when I think about the future, often I get really despairing because Things can often look really grim, but it's important for me to write in possibilities of goodness or strength or the potential for change. And I guess, Larissa, I wanted to talk to you about that too. You know, how important is joy for you? Because Jazz is absolutely right. I wish I had have learned that when I was your age, but I know it now that you kind of do need those spaces for healing. And I guess I always felt because I had this privileged education. I didn't have a privileged background, but I had a privileged education and I felt a huge responsibility to give that back. And I just didn't realise how important those moments of taking time to sit in my own culture, now I can, to take that time to read words that are going to uplift me, to connect to my own country, to engage in an activity like possum cloak making, that these aren't luxuries, they're really central to who I am and I can't be who I am without them and I, I need, I can't do the other work without that. I just, it's, I, I feel thin 
and stretched and I find the moments where I can just sit and be with friends and community aunties and feel their warmth, their laughter, their joy, their generosity is really healing and strengthening. And as Jazz mentioned, there are ways that we are riding now as First Nations people that were inconceivable to me when I was growing up. I find the futurism really fantastic too. It's something I never could imagine and look at somebody like Jazz, I look at somebody like Alison Whittaker, um, Ellen Van Nieven, you just all of these amazing voices and I learn from them all the time. You know, I'm sitting there underlining things when I'm writing my own stuff and I love that there's this whole new world that's opened up. Who could not feel joyous at that time? I think it mirrors Jasmine's own journey in the book and what I love about her journey is that you know, this idea of protest, not as this capital P thing, but also in the quiet personal revolutions where she connects to the wisdom of Auntie Elaine and the wisdom that comes from her own culture that's been kind of minimised and dismissed in the mainstream. She's somebody who has fallen for the false promise of success in in Western institutions, that somehow you get more accepted, but there is a trap that people fall into when they take on the expectations of those professions and those institutions. And I feel lucky that I was able to navigate that more successfully. So when I got accepted to Harvard, all, you know, the profession and the academics were all like, oh, you know, you're so clever. I even had people say, um, oh, so when will you become an elder? I mean, I was like 20. <laughs> 24 or 25 or something, hilarious. Um, that's the next degree, you just yeah, that's then right, go yeah, graduate <laughs> from elder, elderdom. And the wonderful aunties around me would just go, you know, that's great, bub, but what are you going to do when you get back? And that thing about, you know, not in any way taking away how great the achievement was, but just kind of keeping your feet on the ground of like there are other things that you need to be thinking, but don't get caught up with the hype of everyone telling you how clever you are because there is work to do back here. And I love the way that the community has kept me grounded in that way. And Jazz, you know, you've spoken before of the idea of resistance as a form of love. I was wondering if that navigation that Larissa talked about resonates with you as well. The thing that brings me so much joy and the ability to keep working and being is love. And it's the love of community and family and country and kin and all the things that um, make getting up (laughs) in the day worthwhile. There are struggles that are true of every First Nations person. There is no hiding the fact that we live in a very violent colony that has spent the last 250 years hell-bent on our destruction. And that is the sort of thing that can really make it hard to function, right? Because everywhere you look, there is brutality. But Similarly, my experience as a First Nations person is not one that is defined by just hardship. It is one that is defined by joy and love and community and laughter and, like, big feeds. And so having space for those to celebrate love and to be sovereign in that love is, I think, one of the most radical acts that we can do because it is the way that we make absent all the hardship of colony and we are true to ourselves resistance and resisting um, the violences of colony is a way that we 
try to make safer the world that we're in and try to ensure that we're creating a better world for the young ones coming up and creating a better world for the elders who have sacrificed so, so much to give, you know, me and my generation the privileges that I'm afforded. And so I have to pay that back, right, in every direction that I can. I'm just going to let that sit. Gosh. I know, wow. I love This is that. a power hour. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it really it, is. It reminded me too, like, it so resonated with me, like, for all of the, how hard it was outside of my house, I never remember a time when I wasn't proud to be Aboriginal because how I was made to feel in my house, in my home. And and we do have that extraordinary thing. And listening to you speak, Jazz, I'm reminded of all of the people I work with in my legal work, either victims of crime or families who've lost a death in have had a death in custody, so in their own way have been victims of crime. Um, and they have these enormous decades-long battles for justice that's so elusive. And it's not anger that motivates them, it's love. It is love that motivates them, love for the person that they've lost and love for the community to not want to see anyone else go through it again. So, yeah, your your words really resonated with me. I think it's really important to honour how important and revolutionary that that notion of love is because it does change the world. I think love and joy is powerful and the reason, the way that I came to know that was when I was more driven by anger and frustration. I couldn't sustain anything, right? The world was too hard to navigate without the light and the joy. (laughs) Um, And that was sort of around the time that I turned to writing was because I was feeling so much complexity in the world and in myself and I felt like I was operating with so many contradictions, you know, being someone who was angry at so many things but also in love with so many things and, you know, I love country and I hate this country, (laughs) these things that were kind of hurting and and I guess also the sort of white cis heteronormativity of that colonial import does so much harm as well and part of the reason, yeah, I turned to writing was because I felt like I could express how hard these things were and it was okay. It might not necessarily be resolved by the page, but at least it could be held by the page. The more voices we have, the more opportunity we have for these complex, diverse ways of being. You know, Larissa, you're talking about having a character that goes overseas. It's like, because we go overseas. It's true, we do. <laughs> it's yes. this radical thing, but like blackfellas aren't like stuck, stuck by the billabong. And that's the kind of contemporary world. And the more space we have for all this plethora of ways of being, means that we kind of create more ways for other people to see themselves and see truth and to, you know, non-Indigenous people to recognise how broad the experience of everyone is, you know, First Nations and otherwise. Yeah, and because you're not talking about love as this wimpy thing, it's this muscular, fiery, transcendent, luminous force in your book. When luminous, you are... I love that. <laughs> <laughs> there are a lot of emerging artists on this podcast who are listening in, who are from cold backgrounds, who are from First Nations backgrounds, people who um, are living in small towns, people who feel like they're at the margins of their society or not really knowing how they can access institutions or I guess, you know, what what are your tips or advice to those young people listening in light of your own experience? That's a great question. I think to sit in your truth and don't let anyone to take it from you and it can be really really hard if you feel like 
you're in a place where people aren't valuing what you have to say or don't think it is legitimate, but to hold strong in that and to know that there is actually a whole world full of people that want to hear what you have to say. There is community that wants to lift people up. From whatever background you have, there is a community of people who want to see you shine. And so find those people and shine together. And we're finishing off with Jazz, who's going to read a poem from her book, How to Make a Basket. So this poem is called Gadi, which uh, Gadi is a Wiradjuri word for snake. There's a few Wiradjuri words in this poem. I think most of them, even if you don't speak Wiradjuri, I think they kind of tell you what they are by the nature of the word. And it's okay to not have the direct translation. I float translucent upon within the river, whisper home three times. Nurembung, Nurembung, Nurembung. A snake appears, beyond my skin it watches. Though, this snake is made of sky. Gadi, I ask, are you real? Gadi responds. Waiting, I become another. The river is star sky country, Billabang. As we gaze below, our ancestors gaze deeper above. From within the snake's tiptoe ribcage, I am small and the world is only made of dark. We wind. Gaddi carves me home. Nurembung, Nurembung, Nurembung. Water tells a secret slowly. A snake listens as water. As Gaddi, we gather grasses, leaves, small sweet shoots. In my soft mouth, I carry careful spreading seeds along a river home, Billa. Every seed a forest to make more water from which old bodies rise. Slowly curve, slowly listen. All this will take medicine, smoke and time. Do you hear that sound? It's the stars singing down. Nurembung, Nurembung, Nurembung. Thank you so much. Thank you to you both. It's been an honour to have you. It's been fun. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. You can find that poem, Gadi, in Jazz's latest book, How to Make a Basket. And also Larissa's book that we've been discussing throughout the podcast is After Story. They are both brilliant works, so make sure you get a copy. And a reminder that NAIDOC Week is July 3 to 10. Tune in to NITV, who will be rolling out some great content to celebrate this year's theme of Get Up, Stand Up, Show Up. Thank you to Dr. Larissa Berent and Jazz Money for being here for our special NAIDOC episode of The New Writer's Room. The New Writer's Room is produced by Caitlin Chang and Sarah Malik, with audio production by Jeremy Wilmot. Our executive producers are Natalie Hamley and Danielle Toich. Make sure you follow the New Writers Room podcast on Spotify because soon we will be dropping new episodes as we gear up for the 2022 SBS Emerging Writers Competition. We talk to Australia's acclaimed writers and national treasures, and this year's judges, Christos Schulkes and Alice Pung. We go deep on the competition theme 
and we find out from a book editor what they're really looking for. Don't forget, you can find SBS Voices on Facebook and Twitter or head to sbs.com.au slash voices. Thanks and bye for now.